This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome to the 27th episode of the Practice of Learning Teams. Today's podcast is part two of the discussion with the wise man Rob Fisher. Rob Fisher is one of the early adopters of human and organizational performance. Rob is based in North Carolina and his organization, Fisher Improvement Technologies, is family owned and operated. Rob is in the business of doing by supporting organizations to embed HOP and programs like Aero which stands for Advanced Error Reduction in Organization. He calls his team the Practical Application People. We wrap up today's discussion with conversations about 1. Rob, Todd, and the tablecloth of work is imagined and work is done. Identifying and debriefing the gaps in operational learning. Systems resilience, and the notion that we cannot make a system resilient we can make it more resilient or less resilient. And finally, learning teams and the restorative value that they bring to conflict. Before we start the podcast, we have some exciting news for our listeners. During the month of April, we will bring you a special four-part series, starting at episode 28, on a brand new learning teams facilitation framework using the PDCA model for facilitating learning reflecting and improving your system. For those unfamiliar with PDCA, in the 1950s, management consultant Dr. William Edwards Deming developed a method of identifying why some processes don't work as hoped. His approach has since become a popular strategy framework. It allows organizations to formulate theories about what needs to change and then test them in a continuous feedback loop. Deming himself used the concept of plan, do, study, and act. He found that the focus on check is more about the implementation of a change. The focus of study is to understand why the change is working. He preferred to focus on studying the results of any improvements. The PDCA facilitation framework for learning teams has been developed by the authors of the practice of learning teams to assist a facilitator and gaining knowledge and experience in conducting learning teams by framing some of the key concepts and thinking to be applied. Let us now listen to the wise man, Rob Fisher. You know, Todd Conk and I sat down in Norway and created this thing that has now become work as imagined versus work as done. Yes, no, okay? I've seen the tablecloth. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, you've seen the tablecloth, good. Yeah, so, um, but, but our thought in that was, that that adaptability is now a mandatory adaptability. It's a required adaptability because we didn't study, we just check. And when you check, you only check what's there. Correct. When you study, it's, it's a little bit bigger. So, so you, you can actually do that with the whole model and how we've applied it. Oh, yeah, and look, and, and we pushed it a bit further because what we, what we talked to Todd about is we basically said that risk ebbs and flows. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Black line, black line thing. We actually pushed a bit further. We we talked about um, uh, workers imagined, that then it evolves to workers thought, 
then it evolves to work as reported or work as disclosed, then work is done. And what yep. we're saying was that the learning opportunities exists as risk ebbs and flows. Yeah, and, and what we were trying to describe was the question we ask in a little bit simpler form is, do we debrief the gaps, whether that gap is an increase in margin to safety or a decrease in margin to safety? Absolutely. Because the so how do you debrief a gap? Do a mini learning team, a micro learning team? Absolutely. Uh, you, know, you, can, you, you can use it in all different types of, of, of yeah. areas, but you have to put that in your process to do it or it'll be the first thing that gets dropped. And checking does not do that. So then, so then yeah. the second part when we looked at this that we found, which also fascinated was, was the fact that when Deming took those principles to Japan after World War II and Toyota formed its component, when the Americans took those principles back from Toyota, back to America and calling it Lean and Six Sigma and all the other languages, what was interesting is that they productized it into a tool, but removed the reflective component of it. Whereas yeah. the Japanese saw the reflection part as being the most critical to it. Right. And we found that really interesting because it's that ability to reflect is actually what matters. Because if a person can't reflect, how can that learning become deeply embedded? Well, I think what we did was in the big picture, when it came back, we didn't see it as a learning model. We saw it as a production model. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So that, I mean, that, that allowed a whole bunch of... Engineers. It allowed a whole bunch of changes to be made that... Uh, that of things that people didn't feel were needed from a production aspect. And, and, and you could just see where, where it was redlined out. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to do that. Why? Cause it's already running. But if we design it right and it runs right, I don't need to reflect, you know, it'll tell me when it goes wrong. The only thing is going to go wrong. Oh, failure modes and effects analysis. No problem. I do that and I find out, well, the only, the only way I can fail is if it breaks. Well, we can see where that got us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But isn't it interesting how the world keeps repeating itself? Uh, interesting in a, gosh, I'm not so glad it's 1918 again way, yeah. <laughs> and, and look, I mean, what, what I've been saying to organizations is that COVID-19 has proven that systems are brittle and people are adaptable. Yeah. And Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting, this whole conversation about resilience is, is really fascinates me because, you know, when I think about a system, I don't think of a system uh, being a, a socio-technical component, which is, you know, the system being you know, us and everyone together. I think of a system as being the systemization of something. And I think by nature, um, systems uh, continue to be brittle because they can only see the world as being flat. Does that make sense? Because systems... I, I, can, see how, I can see how you... I can see how you can see it that way, because yeah. that's the way the majority of times it's applied. Yes, correct. Um, so, so, you know, you're, we're kind of back to that, all models are wrong, but some are useful. 
Um, well, I, I think people shouldn't be surprised that systems degrade. That's, uh, exactly. Yeah. But that ought to be part of the education, right? Correct. It's because the degradation of systems is predictable. That, that's correct. But, but Just think, like the degradation of equipment is. But, but I think what's happening at the moment is that there's, that there's this impression that systems through their design can be resilient. Well, I, and, and so now we're, you know, we're in, into a place that I like to spend time with senior leaders in that you don't move into resiliency as a place that you've moved out of something else. Right. You make things more or less something. I have more capacity. Yeah. I have more, we are more resilient. Yeah. I, this whole, this, I, no, I'm going to say something that's going to piss a lot of people off. Hey, Can I say piss off? Yeah, the, okay. yeah, down here, that, that's a term of endearment. Okay, good. <laughs> this whole striving to be a highly reliable organization, mm -hmm. where are you going to draw the line? Well, yeah. And, and, you know, so, look, here in the States, we use some examples of high, high reliability that my – uh, again, part of my background, I spent time in the Navy. Mm -hmm. I was on submarines. Yep. They would say, oh, a, a submarine is a highly reliable organization or, or an aircraft carrier is a highly reliable organization. I say, well, they killed 17 people in training accidents last year. Is that what you want to show as highly reliable to your organization? If that's your, if that's your standard, mm, but, but, you know, there's, a, there's this whole cottage industry of high reliability now. I think we can increase reliability. We can increase resilience and we need to. We can increase capacity. We've got to understand the systemic elements of that. We use a task-based system that helps people increase their ability to see risks coming right. before that risk is unmanageable. Yeah. That doesn't mean we're eliminating risk and we know, okay, we moved out of risk now. So I, I, I think we're kind of in violent agreement. But and, and look, I think COVID-19 has proven because every country has tried their own way. Some countries have followed science. Some countries have uh, followed dictatorship. Some countries have different, taken different approaches. And, and, you know, being 250 odd days into this pandemic, you can see which things have worked well and what haven't worked well. I don't know that we can. I don't know that we are seeing what's worked well and what hasn't worked well because we're not far enough into it to be on our way out yet. I think well, we've seen what has worked well to date. And so another thing that we're seeing over here is the science seems to be very flexible. So whoever, it's almost like common sense. If I believe that this, if I believe in this strict thing, that needs to be complied with, then that's science-based. Sure. If somebody else believes in something else, you know, and what might work in, in a country that is isolated by ocean and X million people may not work in a country that is not isolated by oceans and has board, 500 yeah. million people. So, 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 you know, it's got to be flexible. Well, that, that whole science piece is even the whole, yeah, okay, we know masks reduce. But that's not the way science is saying it. They say masks stop. No, no they don't. Masks reduce. 
So you and I, you and I as practitioners of this, we get that pretty quickly. But the way that science is portrayed is the problem. Look, I mean, I don't know, for instance, you know, we're obviously, a, we're a metric company, organization, sorry, we're a metric. Yeah. So for us, it's a two meter rule. In the US, it's a six foot yeah. six feet rule, which is one point yeah. something meters. I yeah. don't think the virus can judge distance. I, I'm, a, I'm absolutely certain it can't. Yeah. And look, so, so, so we're told believe the science, okay? So, so the way we believe science over here in the beginning was every time you go to a grocery store, you have to take Lysol wipes and you have to wipe everything that you bought in the grocery store down. And then the science changed three months in. They said, yeah, yeah that's, that's not really going to help. You can stop doing that. No. So we've, ha we've had these step changes in what they say the science is. But then the places that have been, quote, unquote, successful have used a science approach. Well, which one of them changed? Well, so uh, it's hard right. to convince that many people. Correct. The, the only science that's been consistent is the harm rates. Is the what? Is, is how much harm it causes. So, so what's really yeah. interesting is that you can't hide death. Yeah. Well, now we shouldn't be on record. We're doing pretty well at that over here. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and imagine there's some other countries that don't want to. Um, no, 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 I'm, I'm, it's, yeah. but it's the inverse. I, I, I know. That, we've that, gotten a whole, we, we, we put a whole bunch in that the U.S. is amazing. We've had almost no deaths from flu this year. <laughs> we, we usually have a lot. Yeah. But this year, we don't have any. We've had very few deaths from pneumonia, heart attacks, heart disease, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, emphysema. They've almost disappeared, these other diseases. Right. But they died of something else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, I, and, and I'm with you. I mean, we've, we've been very fortunate because... Um, we, we opted for a, uh, an elimination eradication strategy, which basically meant that we recognised that um, the uh, aged care industry was the group that was at most at risk. And, yeah. and even now, that, that group operates in a different mode to other groups, because once it takes yeah. hold, it just becomes rampant. So, and, and yeah, we, sh we should have done that early on. Yeah. So, and, so even though we've only got a population of 5 million and we've only had 25 deaths, what, what we looked at is that what we had seen is that through that uh, isolation process, other respiratory-based type illnesses have dropped. Now, the underlying conditions of that person haven't changed. Yeah which means that we move back to the normal flu season, we're probably going to see a bit of an increase as a result yeah. because those underlying factors haven't changed. Yeah. But that's got nothing to do with um, um, COVID-19. That's been with right. isolation. Now, yeah. what you'd have to ask yourself, what's been the effect of mental health on those people? Yeah, and, and that is a... That, that's, this is going to sound insensitive. Yeah. To me, that's the real global pandemic yes. issue. People feeling isolated. Um, yep. 
for all the different reasons, there's a multitude of reasons that are all coming together at a time in human history where we're more and more sensitive to things that might bother us. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, so the human resilience to me is a little bit lower now than it has been in other generations. And, and that, that opens us up to these challenges that can come at you at multiple different directions. You know, there's some, there's some great folks down in your neck of the woods, especially Anna Faringa, who, if you don't know her, I, I encourage you to link up with her. Um, she's a mental health expert there in, in, uh, in Australia and does a lot of work in Australia, New Zealand, um, that is helping companies start to focus on that attribute. Uh, and we've, we've even adopted some of the things that she's, that she's talked about and recommended uh, in our own organization just to, even though we're small, because we know that we need to be on top of it. But oh, I, I completely agree with you I mean, that that's, um, that is a big deal. Rob, um, me and my guys, um, we've been practicing mindfulness for over five years. Yeah. And I've always been a big fan of, of it because it really helps to, um, you know, it, it really, uh, that, that whole reflective process, not being able to ruminate and, and be present has been really, really helpful. Yeah. And like everything else, um, uh, we call it risk homeostasis. That the, the moment we sort of go, we try to go back to normal, <laughs> we, we tend to drop all our defenses. And then the yeah. moment something happens, it's like we're having to relive the worst parts of it. And, and if you keep repeating that, that builds up all that type of harm and, and trauma. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be some amazing learning teams that can come from this. But, but more yeah. importantly, I, I think both, you know, these facilitated improvement teams and learning teams, I think can be very powerful in a restorative way for workers as well. And well, that, I agree. Yeah. And, and we should be using them to help create that psychological safety that they need Yeah, uh, something that's not really being talked about. Well, I, I, I get it's it, and it's funny, you know, I think it's great. We're having this conversation. The, the phrase you just said is absolutely right. It hasn't been talked about. Those of us who've been doing it have been it's been a part of it, Practicing but, it yeah. but it's been it's been under the carpet. You know, it's been a natural result of the way that that happens, that yeah, one example, you know, we, and we use some tools to help with things to, to move companies down the road. Um, we, we had a union and, and, and uh, leadership uh, mismatch that these folks hated each other. Cool. No other way to describe it. They hated each other. They only got in the same room because they were mandated by the, by the big company right. to be in the same room for a safety meeting once a month for one hour. When we started uh, helping them learn, when we brought, brought in uh, the elements of a facilitated improvement team or a learning team to try and understand how they um, needed to think and behave differently, as a group and as individuals within that group, 
the restoration happened in weeks, not months or years. I mean, things that took uh, almost a generation to get as bad as it was were completely different within weeks. I mean, within, within eight weeks, the union president was at the international union telling them how they restored the relationship between leadership and the workforce. And, and that's the power of using these teams if they're done right, if the, facil- if the facilitator does the right thing, if, the, if they, they, uh, they coach the behaviors of the individuals within the team, and if the desired outcomes are something that the individuals in the organization needs. Yeah. It's that, all that lovely alignment that comes out. And, and look, at that, yeah. and I've, I've seen you know, repeatedly the power of it. And, yeah. and um, once again, organizations say to me, you know, we, we just learned more in the last 90 minutes than in years. How did that yes. happen? How did it happen? And, and, and if they don't say that, you better be, get reflective about how you conducted that learning team. Absolutely. And, and that's really the key thing to it. Um, uh, because those, that, that, and that, that's why that reflective component for a, for a facilitator is so important. Because yeah. um, I, I think there's this, this, this thing that we were scared about is that we think we have to be experts before we start the journey. No, we, we need to know some basic components. We need to, we need that, that coaching and that support on our journey. We, we need to know where, where, where we're at. We need to know where we're trying to go to. But ultimately, it's that ability to reflect. It's okay not to be perfect. Perfection doesn't exist. Yeah, and, and so we've we've actually, sorry, sorry to interrupt. We've actually stopped using the term experts because that implies a destination instead of a journey. Absolutely, but but I suppose safety is full of experts. All of which must fail because safety is still having problems with people getting hurt, maimed, and killed. Yeah, absolutely, but it's sort of. Become- so, I mean- um, it, 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 it's, it's seen as a, a, a typical science. Yes. Typical science. Well, that's, that's you know, I, I now um, sit on the advisory board for one of the major universities here in the States that produces safety professionals. Yes. And, and one of the reasons why I'm so excited about being on that board is because we're going to try to draw different people in you know if you approach safety as a sustainability attribute instead of a technical attribute then that approach is going to be completely different if you uh, approach safety as the ability to create capacity and some and some additional organizational and individual resilience that's a different way that those people get taught from the technical check boxes that most universities spit people out from and, and I'm excited about that change. Uh, and look, I'm 100% with you. I'm very fortunate. I um, teach the diploma in safety down here. I'm one of uh, five people that, that teach it, and, and I teach, uh, uh, you know, the risk management component and uh, learning teams. I don't call them learning teams. But what I do is I basically say that, you know, risk management is all about understanding its context. How do you create, how do you create the opportunity to understand what does that context mean? And that every right. stakeholder views it in their own way, and that's where we came up with that term, um, functional diversity. That every stakeholder has a different view, and if they're not part of that, 
of that and sharing their their view of that, how can the organization learn? Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I have a podcast called the Essential Leadership Cycle Podcast. Right. And what we say are things like trust and diversity and inclusion, commitment, accountability, and learning. Those are all resultant conditions from three things, self and team awareness, mm-hmm. shared vision and values, and clear roles and processes. Yeah. You get those three right, you can start to create the others. You get those three wrong, you're going to struggle with all those things. It's going to, it's going to inhibit that. Yeah. So Rob, just, just in wrapping up, what do you see as the future of these things? What do you see the future of sort of facilitated learning team? What do you see the future as being? Well, I, what I think is that the, the future is going to be that they're going to be, we're going to create methods and models that almost any organization can use. Some of those will be tech, technology-based. Some of them will be uh, one-on-one or virtual-based. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to right-size learning for the needs of organizations, especially smaller organizations. Right. Yep. You know, in the U.S. and Canada, 75% of fatalities happen in companies under 100 people. Yes, I, I agree. Yep they're not going to hire us to come in and help them do a learning team. We have to provide a service Mm -hmm. that helps them do that and benefit from it the right way when they can't afford having somebody come in and do it or, 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 or anything else. And, and I think that, so that's one thing that's going to happen is it's going to be right sized for a bunch of smaller organizations and done correctly. The second thing is I think it's going to be taught as a part of being a safety leader in safety leadership training in colleges and and universities and in safety certification programs so that people start to learn the attributes that are needed to be better at this thing that we've branded safety which is really very undefined but everybody thinks they've got a clear vision of what it is. Sure. Um, so I, you know, I'm excited about the technological attributes of it because I think that we can create a lot of success criteria. We, we you know, our, we, we've now established what we call fit online is online.improvewithfit.com. And there's a whole bunch of freeware there so that people can learn about all the different, little micro attributes that they can go out and and use so we'll have facilitated improvement teams as both a micro learning and as a you know paid course on there uh, fairly soon but i think that it's going to expand to a way that organizations understand how they can be better right and and what we're going to have to avoid is branding it in a way that makes it look like it's, it's a big, huge deal as opposed to something that almost anybody could do. And, and look, that, and that risk, and that's what we keep coming back to weaponization. That's going to sadly happen because yeah. history keeps repeating itself in that regard. Yeah. Um, what I like about what you're doing and what Todd's doing is that you've basically said, here are a set of core values, core philosophies 
and if people stick to those core values and core philosophies then you can you can do some adaption and some change but the moment you move away from those core things then that's when things start to become weaponized in that way yeah and we've had, we've we've also gone a little step further in that we've started really being overt about what we know doesn't work yeah so just like you you would tell a worker here's how a machine would fail you can say here's how these things fail and the, and what you need to watch out for yeah so we're giving them both success criteria and failure criteria the failure modes and effects analysis of doing these things so it it increases their opportunity to not go out and be so creative that they fail yeah well and you're helping to normal normalize the fact that failure is present yeah oh yeah absolutely create that awareness that's great yeah and for our listeners and our show notes we'll have all the contact details for for rob and his and his organization as well so rob once again a big thank you for taking time today as we lead up to the holiday season participating and uh, this podcast will be going out in the uh, the first part of early 2021 awesome well, thanks for having me. This has been a great conversation. Let's, uh, let's do it again sometime. Absolutely, bitcha. Thank you, listeners, for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and be part of the community practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.